I've related that to the statement in the Westminster Shorter Catechism in that question, what is sanctification? It's that work, not an act. Justification is the act of God's free grace. But justification, that work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. That's God's part. God does that. And then we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's our part. As we then act in response to what God has done. And the book of Joshua, dealing then with the conquest of the land, is so much a picture, so much a picture of what it is uh, that God does in our sanctification and really in the advancing of the Church of Christ right across this world. So as we come to our final uh, consideration in this little series, I think this is the fourth time we've been together. You have the little outline that I have given to you earlier. I think there's still some out there. First point, every advance depends on God. And we looked at various aspects of that. And now today, every advance depends on us. The promise is certain. The promise is certain. But the individual enjoyment of that promise is always going to be conditional. The promise of God is absolute. It's going to be fulfilled. But in terms of our individual participation, there are certain conditions uh, that we are going to have to employ. God said, I'm going to drive out the Canaanites. I will drive out these nations that are stronger and mightier than you. Now you get in there and destroy them. But had Israel not got in to destroy them, all right? had Israel not acted in uh, response to what God had said, uh, the Canaanites would still be there. Uh, the Canaanites were not going to say, well, you know, give me time to pack up and I'll get out of here if God's giving you this land. Uh, the Canaanites were going to fight. Uh, that was their land. They had a hole there and they were going to fight. And Israel then had to fight as well. Now, you can see on the outline then, uh, no, no contest here, I say, between God's sovereignty, what God does and what man must do. But these are always partners uh, in the work of the church and certainly in the work of sanctification. See, the Canaanites did not roll over and play dead, and the Israelites did not passively receive the land by faith. And that's the first point, uh, that our advance, our role in this whole issue of sanctification, in advancing the cause of Christ, is going to be conditioned by faith. It's an interesting text here in Joshua chapter 10. Remember in Joshua 10, this is one of those key places where it appeared that things had got out of control. This is where the coalition of kings come together against, uh, against Israel. Uh, and uh, the Lord did that. Remember, he hardened their hearts to get them out of their cities, bring them out into the open plains where now in a single battle, uh, Israel was able to conquer them took the long day, God again supernaturally uh, showing himself to be the one fighting for Israel. But in this context of this battle where all of these enemies now are gathered together uh, against Israel, look at what Joshua says to them at verse 25 of chapter 10. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And then afterward, Joshua smote them, 
slew them and hanged them on the five trees and so forth. But fear not. If we were doing a whole study of the concept of faith, uh, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures, part of the jargon of faith is this imperative not to be afraid. All the way through the scripture, God tells his people, don't be afraid, don't fear, don't fear. And if, if you look at the context in which God tells his people not to fear, uh, it's always in a situation when scary stuff is taking place, uh, where they're in danger, uh, where there is some external circumstance that is coming against them, and it is a very scary situation. And God says to them, don't fear, don't fear. Part of the vocabulary of faith, and the only way we cannot be afraid of the stuff that we see, yeah, is that we walk by faith and not by sight. If we walk by sight, then all that scary stuff is going to overwhelm us, and that scary stuff is going to paralyze us. We tend to be paralyzed uh, in the times when we are, are fearful of something, and uh, we all have examples of that. I, I, I'm thinking right now, maybe I've told that story here, I don't know, uh, walking out of the woods one night, and right in the path in front of me was a copperhead snake that was as long as one of these rows here, as I recall, uh, at least in my memory, that's how long it was. Uh, you, we don't have copperheads up here, but now the copperheads are dangerous little snakes, they're poisonous, and it, I, I saw, and it froze. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, was, I confess, I was afraid, all right? Uh, there's something about fear that tends to paralyze you. And if Israel were to be fearful of the Canaanites, they would just still be on the other side of the Jordan. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the only way we cannot be afraid of the scary stuff is to see something, is to see something beyond what physical sight enables us to see. That's why we're told to fear God. We're to fear God. Uh, there's something about what we fear and who we fear uh, that will determine our behavior. If we fear the stuff of life, it's going to paralyze us. But if we fear God, if we, fear, if we are living in the reality of God, and that's what Joshua is telling the people here. God has given you this promise. God has made it clear that he will fight for you. Now, you've got to believe that and go into this battle with the confidence that the victory has already been won. Taking God at his word. Taking God at his word and living as though his word is really true. Yeah? Uh, living as though his word is really true. I think sometimes we, among ourselves, yeah, among ourselves, we have our little jargon, uh, and, and we, we, we know what to say among ourselves, and uh, yeah, but then we, we get out into the real world, we get out away from one another, uh, and, and how does our religion affect us? You know, how does our religion really affect us? I, I'm preaching tonight across town here. Uh, uh, on basically my theme is keeping religion real. How do you keep your religion real? And, and it, it impresses me. Have you ever noticed how, how, how those that are involved with cults, uh, those that are engaged in false religion, uh, they really tend to live as though what they believe is true. Have you noticed that? Uh, you, you have those that are engaged in false religion, and it affects their lives. It really dictates how they behave, and sometimes very, well, we won't go into all the they end up doing, but they live as though it's true. 
But why is it that so many in confessing evangelical Christianity? Oh, we have our creed. We have our creed. We have our confession of faith, and it's the right one. But yet, it doesn't seem to have a connection uh, in the way we live day by day. Can we come to live in the reality of what we say we believe? And this is what Joshua here is saying. God's made the promise. God has made the promise that this victory is yours. Now, get up and take possession. Possess your possession. Uh, where, where does it say? There's, there, is that in Joshua? There's a, there's a line like that. There. They're going to possess their possession. It's a beautiful statement. Uh, but that's conditioned, I say, by faith. How does what we believe translate into our experience? So sin will not have dominion over us. Is that true? Yeah. Paul says it's true uh, in Romans. But why is it? Why is it that so often in our battle against sin we tend to just succumb? It's by faith. It's by faith in what God has promised, applying then and resting in our experience in the reality of what Christ has done in defeating sin, uh, that we then can more and more die to sin and more and more live under righteousness. So, first thing, uh, in terms of our responsibility, is to believe. It's to believe and to act on the basis of what God's word has said. And then, secondly, here, it's conditioned by obedience. And if you read the book of Joshua, you'll find over and over again that Joshua is keeping the law of God, the law of Moses, before the people. And when you see the word law here, let me just digress for a moment. When you see the word law, uh, in texts like that. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments just. Uh, the, the word that is translated law in our English Bibles uh, typically is the word Torah. You've probably heard the word Torah, uh, which is the first, can refer to the first five books of Moses, right, the Pentateuch, or it, it, it's the general word for special revelation. So the law of God is not just, I say, the Ten Commandments. The law of God is the totality here of God's revelation that he has given to us. And over and again, uh, in the book of Joshua, we find chapter 8, I'm thinking of particularly here, where the law of God was set before the people, and obedience then was the proper response. Uh, in chapter 22, verse 5 here, now as we come to the end of the uh, conquest, uh, verse 5 says, But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, Revelation, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to cleave unto him, to serve him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. There's the totality of religion here. There's the totality of what true biblical religion is indeed to look like. But it's an obedience. Take diligent heed to do this. Take diligent heed to do the law of God. And that will manifest itself then in these acts of obedience. You love the Lord. You love the Lord. Is that not the greatest of all the commandments? To love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind. To walk in his ways. There's our sanctification. To keep his commandments. There's our obedience. To cleave unto him. There's our, our allegiance to him. To serve him with all of your heart. 
There's obedience. Obedience to the law of God. Same thing in chapter 23 in verse 6. Uh, you have that, uh, that emphasis. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written uh, in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. Keep referring to Moses here, you understand, obviously, but by this time when Joshua, that's all the, that's all the Bible that there was. All right, that's all the Bible that there was at this time. So believe the Bible and live, obey what God is saying. Uh, and if we're going to go forward, uh, you go back to, our, to, to Romans chapter 6 here for a moment. You have that imperative. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. That's a, that's a command. All right, that's a command that God is giving to us here. We have to obey that command. But we don't start, and can I emphasize this? We don't start. I, I've heard sermons sometimes. I, 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 if I hear a, a sermon in Romans chapter 6 that begins with, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal bodies, I'm ready to walk out. Uh, that'll put people in bondage. All right, that'll put people in bondage. There's not a Christian, if you truly have grace in your heart, there's not a Christian that I know of that doesn't want to obey that command. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. We want to give it away. But if we just look at it from the standpoint of beginning with that command, we're going to end up in frustration. I know that I'm not supposed to sin. I know that I'm not supposed to let sin reign in my mortal body. I know that I'm not to yield my members as instruments of... Un I know that. Yeah. But the basis for doing that is remembering what God has done. Right? Here's the link. Remember our union with Christ. Remember that when he died, we died. We were baptized with him. And it is because of what Christ has done to break the dominion of sin. Now, therefore, with that in my mind, with that in my heart, with that in my spirit, let not sin reign in your mortal body. So we don't start with the imperative. We start with the truth. We start with the doctrine of what God has done. And then that gives us the impetus to obey. And all the way through Joshua, we, we have that. God said, do this, and they end up doing it. Uh, the, the conquest of one of the highlights of Israel's history, wasn't it? Uh, and it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing when we turn the page uh, from Joshua to Judges, uh, and we find out that not all of the Canaanites were driven out. There were still some that were there. And Israelites said, well, we, we, we can... We can use them to our advantage. We can make them chop wood for us and, and whatever else. But it became the snare for them. It became the snare and ultimately turned around. You cannot play with sin. You can't play with sin. There must be this obedience not to have sin reign in our mortal bodies. And connected to that uh, really then is the third thought that it must be conditioned by purity. If we're going to have a relationship with God, if there's going to be fellowship with God, uh, at, at whatever level, there must be purity uh, of heart. What does the psalmist say in 24? Uh, he that ascends to the holy hill uh, must have what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, there is still the truth that sin separates us from God and even as believers. Uh, when we have sin in our heart, it's going to destroy that fellowship. And it's going to destroy the enjoyment. It's going to take away the enjoyment and the experience of that fellowship that we ought to be having uh, with the Lord. 
so we must consecrate ourselves. And uh, you, you, you see that in Joshua. We'll take time to look at all of the references there. But remember when they, they were getting ready to cross over uh, the Jordan, cross over the Jordan. Uh, and uh, Joshua, consecrate yourselves, consecrate yourselves, purify yourselves, because there's a work now to be done very shortly. And what was the first thing, too? Uh, this is not, I think, without significance. You come to chapter 5 uh, of Joshua. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've crossed over the Jordan, and now they find themselves at Gilgal. Uh, and, and what takes place at Gilgal? Circumcision. All right, circumcision. For the first time now in 40-odd years, for the first time in 40-odd years, circumcision is brought again into the, to the forefront. For expediency purposes during the wilderness wandering, circumcision was set aside. But now that they're in the land of promise, now that they're in the land of promise, everything, and, and what's, the, what, what's the, one of the great pictures uh, of circumcision? The removal of the foreskin and the flesh. Uh, removal of the flesh, the removal of that sin nature, as it were. Uh, circumcision becomes a symbolism, a sign, an object lesson, a purity. Uh, and the very first thing then that had to be taken care of before they entered in even to the battle uh, and, and started marching around Jericho was to make sure that there was purity of heart and purity of life symbolized, symbolized by the circumcision and then the consecration of the priests, the consecration of the people. Uh, there must be this forgiveness there must be this restoration, there must be this reconciliation, and the experience of it. And that requires, I say, the purity of the people. And that really becomes the ultimate objective, really, of our sanctification, isn't it? Uh, to become, to become holy, to become holy. And that's one of the key differences, right, between our, our, our justification and our sanctification. We are not made holy in justification. We're declared holy. God regards us as holy. We saw that uh, illustrated in, in Philemon, right? Uh, it, 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 it's a declaration. But is there a moral change that takes place in salvation? Yes, there is. There is an inward heart work. There is that imposing, if I can put it in those terms, of a spiritual life principle in the heart that gives life and now the impulse uh, to holiness. And in sanctification, there's a moral change that takes place, a moral change that takes place, dying more to sin and living more uh, unto righteousness. And I say it's not just, it's not just a game. Uh, we guard ourselves against becoming like the world. We guard ourselves against allowing the Canaanites to control us. Yield not. So purity. And then the last thing, and this is a great theme uh, in the book of Joshua, that this advance, particularly now from a corporate perspective, uh, is going to depend upon unity. We heard something of that this morning, didn't we? Uh, of all of those names that are mentioned at the end uh, of Philemon, uh, all those other characters that are now brought into the picture. Here is something that seemingly was just between Paul and Philemon, uh, but now he incorporates because there is a body, all right? The church is a body, 
uh, and there is to be a unity. And so much of the book of Joshua, as it deals with this conquest uh, in regard to the advancing of the nation, but I think there are still implications, as we saw today, for very personal things. Uh, the unity that we have one with the other. Uh, all Israel, all Israel, uh, all the people of the congregation. Uh, the necessity, yeah, this is a great picture of this unity. Remember uh, when Moses was uh, still in charge and they had come up through the Transjordan area on the east, east side of the Jordan, Transjordan. Uh, and there were two and a half tribes. There were two and a half tribes uh, that were impressed with the, with the land there. And they, and they say to Moses, can we have our inheritance here? Right, so you have Reuben, Gad, and the half a tribe of Manasseh. Uh, can, can we have our inheritance here? And Moses says, okay, on one condition. On one condition, you can have this as your inheritance, but there's a union here. There's a unity here of the people uh, of the nation. And, and when your brothers now go into the land of Canaan and they start fighting for every inch that they take, you better be with them. All right. Uh, you be with them and you have to join. There, there is a unity here. There is a unity here. Uh, and the two and a half tribes that were going to take their inheritance on the west, uh, on the east side of the Jordan had to fight the battle, had to join with their brethren uh, in the conquest of the land. And then at the end of Joshua, at the end of Joshua, what happens? Conquest is over here in this particular stage of it. And now the two and a half tribes, they want to go back uh, to their inheritance. And so when they go, they erect the stone monument. And when the other people of the, of the land see this stone bombing that they get, they get all upset because they thought this is going you're going to be offering sacrifices here uh, and we're not going to we're not going to tolerate that we're not going to tolerate that because we remember what happened with Achan remember Achan remember Achan after Jericho God says don't touch anything Achan saw the garment and the gold he took he took that hid under his tent and he was discovered and Achan was a nobody. Achan was an absolute nobody. That's illustrated by the way that uh, they d discovered Achan. Uh, call, call all the nations, pick the tribe of the family, whatever, whatever. And finally, they get down to the they get down to Achan. Uh, he was a nobody, an absolute nobody as far as the nation was concerned. But it was his disobedience. It was the disobedience of one man uh, that caused the defeat of the entire nation, all right? Because there's a unity there, uh, unity there. And, and now uh, the nations, when the two and a half tribes want to go back and they erect this little monument and they say, you're going to do that for sacrifice? We, we know what's going to happen. You, we're going to be destroyed because of God's anger against you. And the two and a half tribes says, no, no, you're misunderstanding. Uh, this, is, this is not an altar for sacrifice. Uh, this is just an altar to remind uh, us and to remind you that we are all part of the same uh, of, of the same nation, you see. But the unity, the unity uh, that must be a part of God's people, and as it relates to the work of the church, the kingdom in, in general terms. But let, let's just talk about this church. Uh, we, we do. We, do we want to see this church advance? 
Do, do we want to see the advancing of the kingdom of Christ through the ministry and the exercise of this church? Yeah, who's responsible? Well, we've got our pastors. Yeah, we sure do, and we thank the Lord uh, for those pastors. They're the gifts of God, all right, to us. They're the gifts of God to us. And we have our elders. Yeah, we, 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 we elect these men to be, yeah, it's, let the elders. We have our deacons. To, yeah, all these are God's gifts. All these are God's gifts. But who is responsible? Who must be engaged? It's all of us. It's all of us. And if the episode of Achan teaches us anything, it is that everybody matters. Everybody matters. I say, here was Achan, just an absolute nobody. I can get away with this. Who cares? It's just me. Yeah, just a little bit. Just... But it did matter. And it was the sin and the impurity and the disobedience of one man that caused the defeat of the entire nation. And it's, it's a remarkable story there uh, in, in chapter 7. And Joshua gets all upset, right? How come? You know, we, we march around Jericho and all we did, blow a horn, walls come down. And now we go against little bitty I. There, I was nothing, seemingly. I was nothing. Uh, and, and we go against I and we're defeated. And, and Joshua starts taking it out of the Lord. How come this is happening? He falls on his knees, and God says to God, God says to Joshua, "It's not time to pray, right? Get up, get up! It's not time to pray about this. I'm telling you what the problem is: there's sin in the camp. You see, uh, and because of that sin in the camp, discovered, and I say you know the story, but it's, it's a sobering reminder to us: uh, who who here, all right? Who here is the least important? Who thinks the least important? Yeah, everybody matters. There is a unity here." Uh, and if this church is to know the blessing of God, if this church is to go forward in the advancing uh, of the kingdom, uh, it's a part for us all. It's a part for us all. And not a one of us that cannot be the one that jeopardizes uh, the work uh, of the kingdom. That will sober us up. That will sober us up. So sovereign grace is the cause of blessing. Divine faithfulness is the guarantee of blessing. And our personal commitment to the truth of God's word becomes the condition of the blessing. And the book of Joshua uh, teaches us uh, that in a very graphic, in a very graphic way. It's a picture. It's a picture of great theological truths. And this is the, one of the, the, the great beauties to me of God's word, that uh, the truth can be set forth in so many ways, didactic passages, poetic passages, prophetic passages. Here's story. Here's a, the book of Joshua is a story uh, that God tells us, uh, but a story that is filled with great theological significance. Okay, so that is just an overview of Joshua with that one particular theme, and I trust the Lord will help us each one to live in the reality. That's the key thing. I, and I pray that for myself, and I get so convicted in my own heart. You know, can we live in the reality of what we say we believe? Yeah. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we give thanks for thy word, a word that comes to us in so many ways, but a word that is forever true and settled in heaven. And we would ask by the help of thy spirit, 
Lord, that we would translate what we know uh, into the way we live. So bless us, Lord, and use this church. Lord, we want to be used. We want to be used for the extension of thy kingdom and the glory of thy Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.